0: In the fall of 2014, the Obama White House got a wake-up call. The National Security Agency had detected an alarming computer breach. We're seeing signs the Russians have gotten access to the White House, the NSA's deputy director told Obama's chief of computer security. This turned out to be no ordinary hack. Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, had penetrated not just the White House computer system, but the State Department as well, and began exfiltrating data and emails of U.S. officials dealing with issues of interest to Moscow. Even President Obama's private schedule was targeted. Little was said at the time about the hack and who was responsible, but it led to a furious cyber battle between NSA cyber sleuths and Russian hackers that one top official compared to -to hand-to-hand combat. But if this was a wake-up call, the American government didn't stay woke. Less than two years later, the Russians struck again, hacking the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign. And in recent days, U.S. officials discovered that the Russians were once again at it, this time using highly sophisticated new techniques to penetrate computers at the departments of Homeland Security, Treasury, Commerce, and State, as well as untold numbers of major U.S. corporations. Why do these attacks keep happening, and how come the billions we spend on cyber defenses aren't able to thwart them? We'll discuss with Alex Stamos, the former chief information security officer at Facebook and Yahoo, and then we'll talk to Tom Lobianco, Mike Pence's biographer, about what the vice president's going to do on January 6th, when he will be required to preside over the formal election of Joe Biden as president of the United States. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent
1: for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: So, you know, to a certain extent, this is like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra famously said, dealing with a Russian hack. We spent so much time in 2016 talking about the Russians and their hacking uh, proclivities. Uh, And, of course, it didn't start in 2016. They had a long history of doing it. But the idea that, you know, all these years later, after all the attention and controversy about Russians getting into our sensitive computer systems, the idea that this could happen again on a massive scale is pretty shocking.
1: Well, there's a reason that our, uh, our friend and uh, recent Skullduggery guest, David Sanger, calls it the perfect weapon, because it's cheap, you can do it from very far away, you know, mostly undetected or at least undetected before it's too late. And it's incredibly hard uh, to defend against. And I think the real challenge here is that A, it's proven incredibly difficult to build up the kind of defenses that can prevent these kinds of attacks. Retaliation, trying to deter offensive attacks from a rival uh, country is very difficult because there's the danger of Escalation, which the Americans have not wanted to do. And no one, there, there are no sort of international set of norms that people can agree to or are willing to embrace. So that's why this keeps happening over and over again. And I think um, it's. I, I don't see how this is going to stop happening. And it's what we'll talk to uh, our excellent guest, Alex Damos, about.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other part of this is how it's going to factor in U.S.-Russian relations under the new Biden administration. I mean, already, you know, Biden is pretty much committed to punching back a lot harder at Putin, distinguishing himself from Donald Trump. And then you put this on top of it, uh, this this sort of major hack uh By the Russians against our government. And even though, even though this is appears to be, at least so far, an espionage operation, not an influence operation such as the Russians did in 2016. And we'll discuss with Stamos just why that distinction is so critical. But I just think it's going to um, add one more layer of complexity uh, that the Biden people have to deal with in trying to figure out what stance they take with with Putin. But uh, before we get there, Let's take a nod to the developments this week. Mitch McConnell uh, formally came around to accepting the results of the election and uh, congratulated Joe Biden.
1: Well, that actually takes us back to Putin because he did it like, you know— I don't know, twelve or twenty four hours after Putin congratulated Biden on Twitter. I think you know, for Mitch so McConnell, Putin maybe- came first.
0: And then and then Moscow Mitch, as the resistance folks call him, followed suit, right? Yeah. It
1: wasn't yeah. a good look to yeah. have uh Putin congratulating him before the uh uh, Senate Majority. But look, Americans. let me just
0: say something to inflame a good chunk of our listeners. McConnell does the right thing uh, just a few days after uh, Bill Barr did the right thing and uh, declared that there was no evidence of, of voter fraud that would have changed the outcome of the election. And of course, then after pissing off Trump, Barr resigns. So I was going to say, like, uh, two cheers for Mitch McConnell and and Bill Barr. Uh, um, the guardrails. Okay, let's not make that as, the title as, of this as, podcast, <laughs> please. It's a cough. It's not going to help. The guardrails yes. held, and uh, for all, for whatever their earlier sins, at this uh, critical time when the president was becoming wackier and
1: wackier. Wow, you know, these they, two they Republicans they epistemological reality. That is, <laughs> okay. that's amazing. I said hey, two chairs, not three you know, chairs. Okay, and in waiting. Yeah. You know, they did damage yeah. by waiting for forty days. Or or, or, or yeah, fair lies, enough.
0: Fair but, enough. Okay. But, but look, you know, at the end, they did it and it did put a coda on it. And, and given, you know, the extent to which Trump and his minions had whipped up his base into a frenzy, you know, there was some tricky politics there on the Republican side for how you handle that. And yes, they should have done it earlier. But the fact is they did it. So let's uh, Let's give some small credit where credit is due. But the question is Mike Pence. Nobody has been more obsequious <laughs> and slavish in his praise of uh, of Donald Trump. And it will be Mike Pence, who on January 6th is required as vice president to preside over the Senate and accept the results of the election. It's going to be really interesting to watch how he it handles will be. That.
1: I mean, he's. For all of his obsequiousness, he is a silky smooth politician in some ways, but I think this is going to be one of his bigger challenges, so it'll be interesting to watch uh, how he handles it.
0: Yes, it will, and um, we got the perfect uh, guy to talk about it, Tom Lobianco, so let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Alex Stamos, the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, former chief security officer for both Facebook and Yahoo. Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So this hack of SolarWinds, which was used to penetrate the computer systems at U.S. government agencies and lots of private corporations, You know, a lot of people are looking at this saying, how, after all these years we've spent and tens of billions of dollars on building defenses to thwart foreign cyber attacks, how does this continue to happen?
2: Yeah, well, this one's a fascinating one, because I think when all is said and done, in a couple of years, we might look back and this could be one of the most impactful intelligence operations in history, honestly. Because the what happened here was the the SVR, the, the Foreign Intelligence Service in Russia, found an incredibly high leverage opportunity where by inserting a backdoor in one product, they were able to get into 18,000 separate organizations, including a huge swath of U.S. government. And I think why it happened, there's a lot of answers to that. But the truth is, is that as a society, we have not prioritize defense. And you know the government in particular has put all of the wood behind the offensive arrow and the intelligence arrow, and has spent very little on either building good IT networks, of building up defensive staff, of prioritizing defensive needs in the policy environment. And we're going to be living with the consequences for a while.
1: Alex, we're definitely going to want to dig deeper into that very point. But before we do, Just for the benefit of our listeners, help us understand why you think this was such a damaging attack. And also, to the extent that we have any clue whether this is about espionage or something beyond stealing secrets here, you know, like altering data or, you know, other kind of um, malign acts that the Russians could be up to.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So we, we don't totally know what they've done. And, and some of the damage has not happened yet, right? So to, to take a step back, starting in March of this year, the SVR was able to put a backdoor into a very popular product that was then downloaded by 18,000 organizations. It's a product called SolarWinds Orion. Most people have never heard of it, but it's actually a pretty popular and famous company among IT folks. Uh, and it is the kind of the, the most used network management platform. And by its nature, a network management system has lots and lots of access. It has the ability to touch and to talk to and to have, in some cases, very high-level credentials on all of the network devices on your system. And that's a huge deal, right? Because it means it's a one-stop shop that if you start your intrusion on that machine, that your ability to jump into any other device in the network is greatly facilitated by the fact that you start at a place of incredible benefit. You know, SVR is good at breaking into companies, but they often have to start on some laptop in the corner, right? And this was a backdoor that got them right to the top of the network uh, on day one. And the reason we don't know exactly what's going to happen yet is while this standard backdoor existed from March through just a couple of days ago in December... It has been closed. Uh, a coalition of FireEye and Microsoft working together were able to take over the control system and to shut down the back door. During any of that period of time, people could have come through that door, jumped onto the network, and then implanted other kinds of what are called persistence mechanisms, other ways to allow them access onto the network. And finding those is much, much harder. It's, it's pretty easy to figure out who had SolarWinds installed. It's extremely difficult to figure out in what circumstances was SolarWinds used to get into the network and what other much more subtle implants have been placed there. And because of that, we might not know for years. And the, the uh, metaphor I use is like the iron harvest, how you know farmers in France till their fields and they still find shells and bombs from World War I and World War II. That's what it's gonna be like for instant responders for years, is that every time there's a breach and there's a Russian actor involved, you're gonna have to ask whether or not that's persistence that was established today. And so that's, that's why it's a huge deal and people are taking it really seriously.
1: One quick follow-up, which is that we have just so far on this podcast just kind of taken for granted that it's the Russians, that it's uh, the SVR. Why are you so sure it's the Russians? What, were there telltale signs that tell you with some degree of, of certainty?
2: I, so I have not seen the direct evidence for attribution um, That attribution is coming, it seems, from the US intelligence community as well as FireEye. Those are two institutions that I trust from an attribution perspective. Certainly this is consistent with what everybody thinks about the SVR, right? Is that, you know, there's, as you guys know, there's three major intel agencies in Russia, FSB, that, who does a lot of internal security. Those are very scary people, but the quality of their hackers vary for different groups. There's GRU military intelligence. Those guys are like a sledgehammer. They have good hackers that like to smash and grab and they hit you right in the face. So you, you generally know when you've been hit by the GRU because it's it's fast and it's violent and they, they grab stuff and take off. And then the SVR is like the surgeons, right? Like they will cut your heart out before you knew anything that had happened. Um, and, and they are the, of all the Russian agencies, while well, we talk about GRU a lot, because they get caught. And so we talk about their influence in the US elections and such. For professional defenders, the SVR team has always been the one that everybody's been the most afraid of, because it's quite possible for them to slip in undet- and slip out undetected. And that is kind of what has happened here. So it's, it's certainly consistent with what I know of it, but I can't speak to the actual technical evidence.
0: So... You know, we've all been taught to be wary of spear phishing attacks, which is the sort of standard way that foreign actors have injected malware into our computers and stolen our data. You know, you get the email from it looks like somebody you know, or from an an office you know, there's an attachment. People used to click on the attachments. Now, I think we've all been pretty much made aware that you don't click on an attachment you get in an email. But as I understand it, this breach came through those sort of, you know, computer system updates we all get, you know, frequently, at least once a week, your computer's about to be uh, updated. So, you know, accept it. And we don't think much about it. So I guess my question is, how come from the cyber defense side, we didn't hear more about the potential threat through such a uh, technique before.
2: Well, so people in in cybersecurity have talked about this kind of issue in the past. To be tr- to be honest, right, it, we call them supply chain attacks or upstream attacks. And they have there have been a number of them in the past. Uh, famously, RSA was broken into to a- allow the Chinese to break into Lockheed Martin. So they stole all the code, uh, the, the secret keys for the secure ID tokens, those little tokens you had to carry around uh, before the cell phone era of two-factor authentication. There was Juniper who originally put a backdoor in for the NSA and then their backdoor was backdoored uh, by somebody else. Uh, it is assumed the Chinese but it, nobody's ever really determined who did it. And so these things have happened before. This one is pretty special, though. Um, I don't think it was an auto update. I think it was actually manually initiated, but there was really no indication for the network administrators who were doing the right thing and keeping their critical enterprise software up to date that this would have that backdoor. The binary was signed. It came from the official location without disassembling without taking apart the entire binary and, and reading through it incredibly carefully, there's really no good way to catch this. And that is what's scary here, because if you run a large network, you have thousands of pieces of software on that network, right? The, this is an entire area of risk for which companies have vendor risk management teams, whose entire job it is to triage the different products and then determine the risk. But for the point of where somebody is able to silently get into the continuous integration pipeline of a company like SolarWinds, insert their back door in a way that nobody sees it, and it ends up in a signed official binary. That is a very, very difficult risk to foreclose upon, and it is going to be very difficult to to figure out kind of good ways to prevent this in the future.
1: Well, that raises the point that you had made earlier about we have not invested enough. We've invested too much in offensive Strategies and not enough in, in defensive, and I guess I guess there's sort of three ways that I can think of that you sort of deal with this challenge. One is, which may be the most the bluntest instrument, is kind of retaliatory acts, and you know that kind of deterrence. Then there is defensive that you alluded to, which I want to hear you talk about, and then there's also can we construct some sort of international rules, you know, to govern cyber and um, that may, maybe that's the biggest challenge of all, but why do you think we have not invested enough in, um, in defensive and what do you think we need to do about it?
2: So there's two questions there. So I'll, I'll take the norms question first of whether or not we can create norms or this doesn't happen. I don't think the United States is in any position, honestly, to do that. And, and in the past, we have explicitly said that this kind of hacking is okay. So you know, to be clear, there's no obvious damage has been caused by this. While SVR was in a position where they could have caused a huge amount of damage to American companies and the American government, it looks like it was just used for espionage. And in every situation where the US has been in a negotiating position to create new rules around cyber, we have explicitly taken espionage off the table because we do it all the time. We do it well. There's actually a great uh, kind of blockbuster story that I'm sure both of you read this year from Greg Miller at the Washington Post, where he uncovered that Crypto AG, this Swiss cryptography company, has actually been owned by the CIA for decades, it has been uh, and spent much of the 20th century creating backdoored encryption products that were sold around the world, right? So the US has taken advantage of this kind of stuff in the past. When we did a deal with China around hacking, President Obama and President Xi came up with a, a deal. They explicitly set aside espionage as something that would still be allowed under the deal that really they're only trying to get at economic hacking. So if the U.S. wants to maintain this kind of capability ourselves, I don't think we're ever going to get put ourselves in a position where we're going to say that this is against international law and international norms.
1: Well, we make a distinction between espionage and acts of war. Right.
0: Influence operations, I think, is the is the word. And that's what the Russians were doing in 2016, in which they used hack data for, you know, a political influence influence operation on the 2016 election.
2: So So I do think there's a need. I mean, I, I do think there's a need to create better norms here and create deterrence. I'm just saying, like, this specific operation is completely consistent with the way the United States has acted in the past. And I expect that we are not going to want to. Foreclose the kind of capabilities that we have,
1: but if we are we capable of defending against these kinds of attacks i mean the the sort of I think sense that a lot of people have is that you're always a couple of steps behind the hackers. you just can't quite catch up
2: so in modern defense to be a cso in 2020 it's kind of like being part of you know there's there's Eastern religions that believe you have to kind of Admit the inevitability of death before you can find enlightenment. That's what it's like to be a CISO in 2020, right? <laughs> is you have to accept the inevitability <laughs> of breach and then you breathe and move past it and you can move on to to cyber enlightenment once you accept that, right? Like the truth <laughs> is, is that you cannot keep these kinds of actors from getting your network. What we can do is we can catch them faster and reduce the impact. And th- that's, I think, what we have to focus on here. Honestly, like stopping the solar wind supply chain attack is spectacularly hard, right? And even if you close that, stopping the SVR from getting a foothold in your network is extremely hard. The bigger question is, is why were they able to step out of that Orion system and do a bunch of stuff on these networks and not get caught until FireEye caught them in December, right? Why did they have such a long runway to be able to do this kind of stuff? That's what we need to focus on. And the way you do that is you think about all the parts of what we call the kill chain, right? Of all the steps that attacker has to take to go find the data they want, to exfiltrate it, to have command and control and the like. And then we need to raise the bar of making it more difficult to do those things, to make the steps the attacker has to take to be noisier and noisier, and then to listen better at each of those steps, and then to have a skilled team that can step in and can intervene very quickly. The problem is is that for the vast majority of organizations, including uh, I expect a big chunk of the federal government, they do not have teams that have that level of skill. And that is why it was probably a mistake for SVR to actually use this implant on FireEye, because that is FireEye's entire job. Getting everybody else to that level is an incredible challenge, but that is what we should be focusing on, not trying to prevent supply chain attacks, because I, I just don't think that's possible.
0: So, look, the premise behind the offensive cyber operations that have become much more aggressive in recent years is deterrence, to give the Russians a taste of their own medicine, and that might deter them. But it appears that it hasn't worked at all. The fact that they could be so brazen in 2020, after all the controversies of 2016, and even going back to earlier 2014, when the SVR penetrated the computers at the White House and the State Department, the same group of actors did something like this before, and they haven't been deterred.
1: But before we get to your answer, I mean, have we actually retaliated? Have we been bold NSA, in our offensive?
0: Alex? Hasn't the NSA been much more aggressive?
2: Right. I mean so I mean one of the this is one of the interesting questions that journalists like you are gonna have to try to figure out um, is you know over the last couple of years General Nukasoni has had a classified executive order that gives him all kinds of capabilities to respond without the president's approval, and it is not clear how that's been used. It is a lot of people talk about, you know, power going out here or the networks of the GRU going down and stuff being NSA operations, but we, we don't have a lot of good evidence. That being said, on the deterrence side, deterrence might have worked. So this capability existed for the election. It was, there is no evidence that this capability was used at all to cause chaos during the election. And so that is what I think would have be been considered an act of war, right? Like if this had been used to make the fight that we're having over election security, that, which is already horrible, even though nothing really happened, to make that much worse by shutting down or compromising networks of local and state officials across the country on, on election day. They did not attempt that. And one, that's not really SVR's job, right? GRU tries to do things to weaken enemies through influence operations and stuff. SVR is about gathering intelligence in the long run for long-term benefit. But it's possible that deterrence did work there. And, and there's no other kind of, you know, this incredibly powerful capability was only used for espionage, which again, we have signaled multiple times as a country, we're okay with. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that That deterrence didn't work. I think what might have happened is deterrence shaped the kinds of things that the Russians did in this situation with this kind of capability they have.
1: Well, it sounds like there's some implicit norms that are being accepted. There are some red lines which even our most uh, aggressive adversaries are not crossing right now.
2: Right. Yes. And I, I do think that's true. Like we have yet to see a really broad destructive attack. Now, there's a lot of destruction from ransomware, and it's because those are not. Generally, state groups are groups that sometimes governments allow to operate, but those guys are just trying to make money. And so deterring them is about catching the individuals and making their lives hell. Right. And I, I do think there's more to be done there. But when it comes to this, I, I, things could have been much worse from a damage perspective. And certainly around the election, this capability, which very much existed on election day, could have could have really, really made things much worse.
0: So, Alex, as an expert in this field, are there steps that we should all be taking as consumers? Are there steps you're taking as a result of this to sort of better defend ourselves personally from these sorts of breaches?
2: So for this perspective, there's nothing consumers can do, right? This is about going after the big companies that everybody relies upon. I, I do have a couple of things I'd like to see the government do and big companies do together, right? One, I think we need to have a capability in the government to study these issues and to bring transparency of what happened and what the root cause failures were. So I kind of call it, you know what? what people have talked about for a while, and maybe it's time has finally come, is effectively an NTSB for cyber. When a plane crashes, we end up with a 600 page report a year later with everything from the how the bolt failed all the way up to the management decisions that that created that situation. That is not gonna happen here, right? Like you, you still have parts of the US government saying that they're not going to answer questions about whether they are breached or not. of the 18, Of all of the private companies, only a fraction of them are ever going to be public. Most of them are going to cover it up. They have no obligation unless there is a, a breach of, of personal data like email addresses and credit card numbers. They have no obligation to come forward and that's ridiculous because the truth is, is really good hackers don't care at all about social security numbers. They don't care about stealing people's credit card numbers. They care about the information that gives them long-term geostrategic power. And so we need to change the way that not just have breach notification but effectively intrusion notification laws and we need to create carrots and stick probably around civil liability protections, that if you come forward and that you're honest about everything that happened and you allow for an investigation, that you get some protections. And then we need somebody in the government who's able to pull it all together on the root causes, because we need to learn about what both happened at SolarWinds and then what happened at all of these other companies and government agencies where the vulnerability was able to be turned into more things.
1: Well, we're, we're in the middle of a transition now, and Joe Biden is going to be taking over responsibility for these questions. If you were advising Joe Biden on cyber strategy right now and, and, and what he should do when he comes in, what would be a couple of main things that you would advise him to do?
2: Yeah. So one is I would start down the path of a big kind of omnibus law around disclosure and investigations and liability and notification and all of that kind of stuff. Like that that is all tied together, right? Kind of good... Laws around understanding and investigating breaches is a national security issue. The second thing is I think we just need to change a lot of our focus on defense from offense. It's great that we have NSA and US Cyber Command and that they're doing a great job. But You know, CISA and DHS, who are really the only kind of defense-only agency that works on this, has 2,200 employees. The NSA, one of 17 intelligence agencies, has over 40,000, right? So we we have to start to balance out, and CISA needs to be as technically competent as NSA, and it's just not there yet.
1: And would you also separate the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command?
2: You know, I, I don't feel like super comfortable with my knowledge right now, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. There have mm-hmm. been huge improvements with NSA in the last couple of years and Newberger created this new department, the cybersecurity division um, that kind of re-put together the inf- information assurance. And they've finally, for the first time in a long time, we've started getting kind of NSA using their intelligence gathering capability to then warn private industry about these are the things coming down the pipe. And so obviously they didn't catch this thing. So they're not hundred percent there yet, mm-hmm. but like, I think, you know, it, it's working. Okay. Put together, but I don't have a strong feeling on that. I would like to make sure there's still pressure on them to be using the data they have for defensive purposes. I think the feeling is in private industry that there's a bunch of stuff that NSA knows that's sitting in classified folders that they don't want to ever release because of sources and methods issues. And I think, you know, we need to continue to think that the existence of that data should be used to defend American networks, not just held for intelligence purposes.
0: Alex, uh, one last question. Uh, uh, shifting gears a little bit here, uh, you're a veteran of uh, of Silicon Valley. Certainly another big issue is big tech and regulation of big tech and whether we need uh, uh, stricter rules about information distribution and content moderation. You've been at Facebook, you've been at Yahoo. Do you expect to see uh, moves by the biden folks in this area and what would you recommend on that score
2: yeah so the tech regulation you know there's the antitrust stuff that's happening and i think that is pretty much independent of the administration right like that's already been started by the ftc i don't think that's going to end you have a bunch of state attorney generals that are independent and so you know i feel like the antitrust boat has already sailed um do you, and by you, the way you, on
1: that on that do you think that the government may prevail do you think that facebook will be broken up
2: I don't know. Um, I think if you're going to break up big tech companies, it should be for competition reasons. It should not be for any of these other things people are complaining about. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that's my big thing here is uh, there's there's good reasons to break up the big tech companies, but those good reasons are all about the difficulty of creating competitors against them. Things around disinformation and hate speech and privacy and such. It, you either have one of those problems or you have 10 of those problems. And it, like the, the core trade-offs that have to be made generally do not get simpler when the companies get smaller. In some cases they get harder. That doesn't mean you don't do it. But like, I think there's a lot of kind of really fuzzy fantasy thinking that if you break these companies up, all of a sudden these problems go away. The truth is, is like deciding how human beings are allowed to interact with one another when the cost of speech goes to zero, the cost of amplification goes to zero, and people have unfettered access to one another, that turns out to be an incredibly difficult human problem. And whether the intermediaries there are bigger or smaller, the problem is still hard. So I mean, I think, you know, as a Silicon Valley resident, I'm fine with them being broken up, I think it will create more competition. There's a lot of arguments of it's not being possible to break Facebook up. I don't think that's true. I've said so publicly. I think it's definitely it's not super easy, but it's, it's definitely possible. But I also don't think it solves a bunch of the problems that people are are laying at the antitrust feet.
0: Well, you've also suggested that Zuckerberg should step down as CEO.
2: Right. I, I think like that would actually be best for Facebook's shareholders, honestly. I think Facebook needs to go through the same change that Microsoft went through. And Microsoft did not go through that change until Bill Gates and then Steve Ballmer stepped down, right? Like Satya Nadella has been fantastic for the company. And it's because he was the first CEO they've had who really grew up in a different era um, and had a very different idea of what the company should be like. And I think the same thing needs to happen to Facebook and, you know, Mark, the companies, the needs have outgrown his capability, but also I think the, it's, it's a significant signaling effect to a company when you change out the leadership up top, and it's just very hard for the same people to undo the decisions that they've made in the past. I think he feels so under siege that he's not going to do it because it's going to be seen as an admission of failure, but I, I think the big thing to do would be to do it, and in the long run, that would be better for shareholders, including himself.
0: Well, I'm sure that's made you very popular in Facebook circles uh, where you uh, used yeah, to work. I mean, the holiday <laughs> cards uh, are a little bit yeah. thinner uh, these days. <laughs> this day. uh, I can imagine. Well, we could go on. There's so much here to talk about. But Alex, I want to thank you for your debut appearance on Skullduggery, and and uh, and. Let's hope and there are many more. For many more. <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, hope not, because generally, if I'm on a podcast, something horrible <laughs> happened. So. <laughs> well,
0: okay. all right. Well, we'll wait and see uh, how this one goes down. Anyway, thanks a lot. Good talking to you. Thanks, Ash. Take care. Tom Lobianco is the Washington correspondent for Business Insider and Mike Pence's biographer. He's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Tom, welcome
3: to Skullduggery. Thank you. Good to be here, guys.
0: So now that Mitch McConnell has sort of officially acknowledged uh, Joe Biden's victory in the election, all eyes turn to Vice President Pence, who on January 6th will be called upon to accept the results of the electoral college and declare Joe Biden the victor over Donald Trump in the election and the next president of the United States. What is Pence going to do?
3: (laughs) Yes. What a great question. You know, it's so funny, over the last four years, if you told me that the one thing that Pence would really get nailed on was just constantly ghosting Trump, at like in really tough times, and I, I'm I'm thinking all the way back to the Access Hollywood weekend in October 2016, the Russia investigation, the impeachment inquiry, and now there's talk. Okay, could he ghost him again? Right, you know, Pence obviously after the election was very. What do you quiet. mean
0: ghost him? What do you What are you talking?
3: Disappear, about? avoid the public spotlight, try to dodge the question. Yeah, I remember during the impeachment inquiry last year, which it's hard to <laughs> hard to imagine. It's been a year. You know, I think von Hillier. Over at NBC, was pressing him on what he had talked about with Zelensky, and it was one of the first times he had actually had to answer that question in a very serious way. And he was terrible at it; he, he stumbled the same way he stumbled with George Stephanopoulos in the gay marriage battle back in 2015. You know, and, and
1: me- access, access Hollywood. I, as I recall, he, he like went back to Indiana and. And prayed yes. with Karen Pence or yeah,
3: Yes, he did. And he ditched his traveling press corps at, uh, at Tony Paco's hot dogs restaurant out in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of fitting in a way, but it's also kind of true of the conundrum of Pence when he signed up with Trump, you know, four and a half years ago which is that, you know, you can't avoid them. And Pence, you know, throughout his career has been very good at trying to, at ducking issues. I remember one guy used to work with him in the House when he was the, um, I guess he would have been the, the House Republican Conference Chair back in 09, made a pretty interesting point that Mike was always there when things were going good, but when you needed him for something, he vanished. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in in this case, though, Tom, he can't ghost. Right. He can't. It's vanish. like a he constitutionally a prescribed
1: con- responsibility. Con- constitutional constitutional can't vanish.
0: duty <laughs> to declare the winner of the election. Yes. So I come back to my question. <laughs> What's he going to do?
3: Perhaps I've been listening to Mike Pence too long, dodging <laughs> questions here. Um, <laughs> he does have a little bit of a political out here, if it, um, you know, if he doesn't want to take the heat, and it's it's a big question for him, right? Which is that, how, you know, for his po- politically, it's almost like you can't acknowledge it, right? And you've seen this with people who get chewed up. Um, I saw Kellyanne Conway acknowledge that. Trump lost. I mean the simple acknowledgement of Trump losing is enough on the far right, not on most the far right to get you killed politically. He does have a little bit of an out in that he can kind of point to the parliamentarian's guidance in terms of the procedure of how that day goes, but at the end of the day he will be the guy who says, "Yes, Joe Biden won." Again, you know, now it's like real real, you know, it's almost as real as having the inauguration. <laughs> so I don't know. that It's kind of ironic, right? It's, it's he can't avoid it. And I, I, I think about that in terms of the, the thematically, he might think that he's avoiding it and the way. And he's, a, he's always been a super cautious politician, at least since he's been in an elected office starting back in 2001. But I don't know if he's fooling himself more than he's fooling other people, because some things you just can't avoid. And this is one of them. And the fact that in public, I mean, I think about my my Pence Twitter feed, you know, which I set to like, I don't know, like one thousand any any tweet with a thousand retweets or like a hundred retweets, some sort of magnitude on it. It tends to be a variation of two things, right, in terms of what's catching on on social media. It's either the Christian right asking people to pray for Pence and Trump, and uh, you know, like One American News Network and other people, the Trump campaign retweeting him, stuff like that. And then it's other people like the resistance uh, tweeters saying like, you know, I can't believe that he's doing it again. Like, where's Mike Pence? I remember for like a week after the election, all I just kept on seeing in my Pence Twitter feed was where's Mike Pence? And I had to be honest, like I was asking the same question. Like, where is this guy? Like the election just happened. What happened to him?
1: Has there ever been even like a hint of public criticism of Pence from Trump? I, I can't recall him tweeting anything negative about Pence. Uh, That's one thing I'm wondering. And the other thing is, is there anything Pence would do preemptively with Trump, knowing that he has to do this to kind of try to, again, preempt Trump to take the edge off of it?
3: Yeah. um, I've never seen anything like a direct blast from Trump on Pence. And you know, everything I've heard is that he's okay with them. It's that it's a very, but, it, but it's a very aloof relationship. And I guess in some sense, it's very normal of a VP and a, a POTUS. You know, if you if you forget the bromance of Obama and Biden and you forget the shadow- Which didn't the-
1: start, which did not start as a bromance,
3: by the way. it, de- <laughs> yes. it developed into one. <laughs> That's, yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, Obama thought that Biden was a long-winded, Pain in the ass, um, you know, for 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 a while there in the beginning. But,
3: <laughs> but at least he didn't call him likable enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: don't believe Obama writes that in his book about Biden. <laughs> Long-winded, pain in the ass. No, I'll do a no. search, but I don't, no. I don't see it in the index.
1: I have a scene in my book in an early meeting on uh, closing Gitmo or something where Biden is going on and on. And uh, I think he like basically slaps his arm and says, you know, give the other guy a chance to talk. So there was, some ten- there was some tension there early on, uh, a little bit of tension there early on. Anyway,
3: moving well, that's on. Inter- but, you know, that's interesting because it kind of makes you wonder, like would the relationship have developed a little bit better in a second term? You know, if you'd given him eight years as opposed to four. I don't know. I mean y- – Trump himself comes across in such in such pathological terms uh, you know I'm thinking of, you guys had Mary Trump on the other day I was thinking about a lot of her observations I don't know that that ever would happen and you know the other part of this too is that and actually I, I reported it with you guys last uh, last summer there was a point where Trump was thinking about dropping pets now, that was last summer. I saw a lot of people bring that up again this year. So that would have been summer of 2019. It was not really accurate in terms of scuttlebutt this year because the window for that had passed. But it was a very real discussion. And, you know, I remember back uh, what it would have been like July and August of 2019 when they were really they knew they had a, quote, woman problem in the suburbs, which, actually you know, turned out to be pretty correct, accurate. Right. I mean, that's if it bore out in the election results. They were looking at at dumping Pence. Jared and Ivanko were looking at doing it. Um, I think John Bolton wrote about it a little bit. They denied it to the hilt, but I think that it gives you a sense of the relationship between them. It was very um, utilitarian, very um, just, you know, not not a real relationship in any sense. And and if you look and I you know I write about this in, in pre significant detail in in the book, you know. The actual marriage of these guys back in you know, Ju- July of 2016 is built on political utility itself because the idea was that Paul Manafort and Reince Priebus knew that they had to have uh, uh, the Christian conservatives, Midwest conservatives, and sort of like your Ted Cruz type people, the Tony Perkins uh, types of conservatives come back into the fold for Trump. Which is a strange thing, right? Because normally when you think of like picking a running mate, you start to think about outreach to new groups that you can try to bring in to win in the general election. But this was about doing damage control with the the conservative base on the right. And as it turned out, it worked. You know, Tony Fabrizio, who was, uh, he's a Paul Manafort guy, and he's still on. The, he stuck around through the through the reelect in twenty twenty. Fabrizio ran the numbers on this. And if you recall back in July twenty sixteen, the last three candidates on the on the short list were Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich, and Mike Pence. And. Trump was not hot on Pence at all. Uh, can but,
0: I can I just break in there, Tom? We yeah, had sure. Rick Gates, uh, who oh. was Paul Manafort's deputy, on yes. the podcast a few months ago, and yes. you know, he talked about how Trump didn't want to name Pence. He kept calling him a loser. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> uh, they looked at his poll ratings, thought he said he was a loser, and really had to be pushed pretty hard by Manafort yes. and Gates. To take Pence as this running mate.
3: Well, I'll tell you, and it wasn't just it wasn't just Manafort and Previs and Gates that were pushing him. Go back to the week of July twelfth, twenty sixteen. And I kind of do this in in micro detail in the book. I give like a like a whole chapter to just this one moment, these two weeks right around the nominating convention in Cleveland in twenty sixteen. The Trump campaign play breaks down. In Indianapolis on July twelfth, Tuesday, July twelfth, Pence is not the top pick at that moment. Trump is very hot on uh, Trump does like Christie, but more he's more hot on Newt Gingrich, and part of that has to do with Javanka being very hot on Gingrich, and they like his ability his ability to appear on television, et cetera. The plane breaks down. It forces—it's like a like a forced marriage between Pence and Trump. Effect, it forces Trump to actually pay attention to this guy, and Pence does two things, which are like strangely ballsy for Pence. I don't think he put the word ball, ballsy and and Pence together in, in a sentence very often. The first thing he does is that the next morning, so Trump's campaign is broken down. They're stuck in Indianapolis. He stays over. Uh, downtown Indy, and the next morning they all have breakfast at the governor's mansion, July thirteenth, two thousand sixteen. And Jared and Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. fly into Indianapolis early that morning, and they meet with Trump, Donald Trump, and his and his other son Eric Trump, who was already there with them for that, at the governor's mansion. And they have this like this real brass tacks talk in the bunker, the basement of the of the governor's uh, mansion. It's kind of like an informal. Uh, meeting room down there, and Pence is sitting across from Trump and says, Trump says, why do you want, you know, d- do you want this, basically? You know, I need a killer. Are you going to be a killer? And Pence does this whole thing where he's like, I'm not a killer. You know, it's not me. You know, these are my principles. Uh, I'll help you however I can. I believe in what you're doing. And Trump is kind of astounded by this because he's used to most people bending down and kissing the ring. And Pence does not appear to be doing that. And he asks him pointedly, he says, You know, look, like, don't you want this? Like, I've got phone calls coming in from Chris Christie right now. He flashes his phone and he's like, "Look, Christie wants this. Why don't you want this?" And Pence does something stunning, stunning to me. I I didn't initially believe this, but it it makes sense because he's got more political acumen than we see. He he looks at Trump and he says, "Well, frankly, sir, you're sitting on my couch in my basement. Why do you want me?" And Trump is guffawed by this. He can't believe the the cojones on this guy. That kind of, it opens the door for Pence in a serious way. And by the end of Wednesday, that, so, you know, whatever, 12 hours later, Trump calls him up at the governor's residence and says he's got the pick. And that's it. And the word leaks out pretty fast. Uh, I think it was... uh, I think Melinda Hennebarger had it first. I can't remember who exactly had hey, it. Hey, Tom, first I got to
0: say, that does not sound like the Mike Pence we have seen for the last four years. What not we've at heard all, is a guy it? who's a slavish adoration of Donald Trump. All I can mm-hmm. think of when I think of Pence is the famous water bottle scene. <laughs> <And> they're all <laughs> sitting around the table with a water bottle. Trump yes. puts it on the floor for no conceivable reason that anybody can figure out. And Pence right away does the exact same thing. <laughs> Monkey see monkey do. So the idea of Pence with cojones standing up to Trump, that just doesn't sink with really. anything we have seen publicly from this guy.
3: I'll give you the second part of this, which is where I think it seals it. And I think this gets to more of, of that. Some of this wasn't, it wasn't just Pence that was doing this. So Wednesday he has it. Trump calls him up, says he has it. The next day, Thursday, Christie calls up Trump and says, What the hell is this? How can you give it to Pence? Come on, I thought we were buddies. And Trump says, Oh no, don't worry about it. Nothing's final. Don't worry. Everything's cool. Hey, don't worry about it, man. You and Mary Pat, be by the phone, stand ready. <laughs> and he's like, Okay. He's like, look, you just tell me. Like, you know, if you don't want me to do it, I won't do it. But if you do, I will. Gladly. And Trump's like, no, 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 come on, we'll we'll do it. Don't worry about it. Thursday night, Pence's people catch wind of this, and that's Marty Obst and Nick, Nick Ayers. And they call up Paul Manafort and Trump, who were in California then doing a fundraiser, and say, What the hell is this? You're backing out? And they're like, Oh, no, 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 we're not backing out. Don't worry about it. Now, there's a firm time, there's a firm deadline on this because Friday, 12 hours later, they have to submit paperwork to the Indiana Secretary of State saying whether or not they're going to run again for governor. Because you have to, you can't, it's illegal to run for two offices at once. So you have to, in order to run for vice president, you have to take your name off the ballot and then resubmit it on the ballot for vice president as running mate. So there's a firm deadline of noon, July 15th, 2016. And they don't get a clear answer from them on Thursday night. So they call back again, Marty Opes and Nick Ayers call back again on Friday morning, just a little bit before 11 a.m., and they tell him, look, we're not going to leave the Pence family in the lurch. If you are not ready to commit right now, uh, we're going to pull him pull back and we're going to run him for governor because they need to have jobs. Okay, and this freaks out Trump and Banafort enough that they're like, well, what do we have to do? It's like, can we just tweet it? Can we tweet? And they're like, yes, fucking tweet it. Just tweet. <laughs> Sorry, not cursing, but tweet. And that's what they do. To me, this shows how much they leverage. They found a point of leverage with Trump and they used it. But here's the other part. And this guy kind of goes forward to them ghosting. A couple months later, they'll ghost Trump on Access Hollywood weekend. And What's the game that they're playing? And I think what I saw, what I heard, and what made the most sense to me was that they're positioning themselves to run for president in 2020, because everybody expected that Trump would lose. And that was all the thinking. So why wouldn't you sign on? So when he gets stuck with Pence, Trump and Pence get stuck together at, after the election night, like it's the opposite of what was supposed to happen. And now, if you're the Pences, and this gets to your question, Mike, about how the why is he so obsequious? Because he has to survive four years, and that goes to what we wrote uh, for Yahoo back in you know last last summer, which is that he could be removed from the ticket. He could have been removed from the ticket. I don't know if Nikki Haley was going to be the one put on the ticket, but that was a real possibility. And you saw that. The way I approached that story, and the reason I approached it that way was that you saw it not in anybody from Pence's world saying it directly but in his actions when he puts the water bottle on the floor that that level of obsequiousness do you remember when he mysteriously turned around the plane he was supposed to go to New Hampshire in July of 2019 and it gets turned around and there's like this mystery they're like oh why did why did pence cancel this event and later it comes out that it was the uh, with like a former was it the pats or the um the, the Giants linebacker who like they were doing an anti drug event and this guy was dealing drugs. <laughs> well like it's like an anti meth event. I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was something along those lines. And um the way Pence's people reacted in that moment was they were angry at Trump because he was yanking the leash. That's how they viewed it. And they saw constant loyalty tests.
1: All right, well let's bring it back to January sixth. Uh yes. Explain why this is going to be such a difficult thing for Pence to do, his political calculation. I mean, it's more than just getting, you know, an angry tweet blast from, from Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. Pence is eyeing the a White House run for 2024. Mm-hmm. What's going through his mind as he has to do this this constitutional duty at the end of which he has to declare Joe Biden president of the United States, even though Donald Trump may still not be conceding that point?
3: Yeah, it's steady and slow, playing the long game, and this is what they've always been doing. You know, trying to survive Trump for the last four years to make it to running in 2024. Initially, they thought maybe that would include another four years of Trump. Obviously not. Uh, you know, there's this kind of goes to Pence as a weather vane on the right. He's a very good indicator of, of the movement on the right at any given moment. You know, and you can see that in his changes. I mean, same as anybody else, really. Um, Rubio, for instance, there's a big question. This goes to the, the question of the future of the GOP right now. And, and I, when I talk with strategists, when I talk with Pence people, when I talk with Trump advisors, there is an incredible lack of clarity about this because nobody seems to have a really good sense how firm... Just, let's just walk this back just a step. Why does everybody act this way? If you're a Republican, why do you act this way? If you are Kelly Leffler and you continue to insist that the election was stolen without any evidence, you know, why do you do that? You know, why do you have a Jeff Flake and a Bob Corker but not, you know, whatever 50 other Republican senators acting that way? Trump controls the base. But there's the big caveat here. I am starting to hear people talk a little bit more about whether or not that Remember, remember we talked about in July of two thousand and sixteen that need to repair the conservatives uh, with the Trump base, kind of bring them back into the fold to help Trump. I have caught a little bit of this and we, and we wrote this up in the in the update of our two thousand and twenty four presidential rankings, which just came out a couple of days ago i 'm starting to hear a little bit more that maybe the conservatives are ready to break again, and by my conservatives, I mean like members of the Council for national Policy. I'd recommend your listeners go check out that group. That's kind of like the old '80s Reagan conservatives. You got, uh, I think Ed Meese was on there, and Bill Bennett, like that, kind of that crowd. And it's a very social conservative type of world. You know, on the right, you you refer to them as movement conservatives. This, I'm sorry, this is a very long way of getting to the answer of what happens on January 6. I'm not sure how much political peril there will be, and I'm a, and for him, if he, if he presides over this.
0: Okay, but, you know, he presides over it, but it seems to me he's got bigger problems than, you know, pissing off Donald Trump by doing his constitutional duty on January 6th. What are people going to remember him for? A COVID task force. Right, yes, right. He presided over a response that is widely viewed as a disaster. Yes. He echoed Trump saying it was all going to go away. Remember the op-ed?
1: In the Wall Street Journal column, he yes. mocked the idea back in June of a second wave. Yes. Said, we've got it all under control.
0: And so I, it's hard for me to see how anybody could talk about Mike Pence in the future without front and center the disastrous performance of the COVID task force and the U.S. response to this pandemic. Nobody's going to give him a pass on that. He's been very artful in ducking it. But, you know, what's his path to a political future, given that huge albatross (laughs) over any potential
3: candidacy? It's, um... I, you know, I remember back in what March or whatever, when uh, at the end of February, when he got selected for this, and there was kind of that hot take floating around DC that oh, this will be the excuse, everything that Trump needs to blame COVID on Mike Pence, and you know, and that's it. And which is kind of silly because it, it, you know, yeah, he is ostensibly the leader of the task force, but Trump was the one who ended up taking the podium every day. You know, so it's clear that this was Trump's problem. Now that said. You do see Pence trying to cash in on this, right? Talking about Operation Warp Speed constantly, and it it creates this like this cognitive dissonance. I mean, I get headaches normally. I get more headaches the more I pay attention to this crap. Um, (laughs) Where he's like, okay, now it's not a problem, but we have a vaccine. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Go out and eat. But I'm also leading the fight to make sure you can eat safely. You know, it's like these this, this constant dissonance. And you're seeing that again now, actually. He's a master of the photo op. And I was laughing when they announced that he's going to have his, uh, the vaccine taken on, like, live television on, what, uh, December 18th. It's a very Pence thing to do, you know. And it's kind of like he can't figure out where to position himself on this. You know, there was a moment back at the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic, like before we even knew it, how serious it was, at the end of February, where it's like people were, un- there was a unified response similar to like 9-11. And man, it, I don't think that lasted more than two weeks. And I have to think at some point, one of his Republican primary opponents, whether it's Nikki Haley or Christy Nome or Ted Cruz or whoever, is going to just beat the living crap out of him with this COVID response. And it's not been, a, you're right, that it's not a strong response from him. And a lot of that has to do with his own predilections towards not being a good executive. He's a message guy. You know, he's a, he's a comms guy.
1: Well, what is his, well, I got two questions for you. First of all, what is his message? What's the message for a 2024 candidacy? Do you think he, what you were suggesting before, that he goes back to some kind of earlier movement conservative, you know, Bill Bennett
3: <laughs> type of message? Could be. He really changed. I'm looking at the arc of his career. You know, if he start he starts out in the 80s, he's running as just a uh, you know a cookie cutter uh, NRCC Republican. Back then, he he kind of drops out of that after he loses twice. In the 90s, he's on the radio as like a knockoff version of Rush Limbaugh. He actually did a really great call-in show. He um it was pretty it was pretty interesting. It wasn't like real entirely like Limbaugh. 2000s, he becomes Christian Wright again. 2009, 10, he becomes Tea Party, decides to run for governor, he drops the Tea Party thing, becomes like a Mitch Daniels technocrat, joins Trump, drops the technocrat thing, drops the free trade thing, don't support free trade anymore, um, becomes a populist. Uh, I think the answer will depend upon a lot where where the party is in at the start of 2023. And and we won't know that. Like, I mean, it's, it's really hard to see right now. But I, I'll tell you what he's doing right now is what he's been a master of his entire career. And I don't know if this will work for him because I don't know how much politics has changed to where he can't do this anymore. You know, he started out as a machine politician in the Dick Luger machine back in the 80s, and it worked for him. And they helped him, the power brokers in Indiana, the Republican power brokers, some of them are still around, Help clear the fields for him multiple times. you know. And this, it's congressional primaries. It's not nearly as serious as a presidential primary. But one of the things he got very good at was getting his ducks in a row very early. And if you look at, he's been running for president in a serious sense since 2008. And what he's been doing is lining up donors, keeping up his pro-life uh, bona fides, doing everything he can to try to have all the ducks in order so that when you do make the move, Everything is there.
1: OK, well, let me let me just one just quick follow up on that point, And I'm not sure which way this cuts. What you're saying might help him or not. Donald Trump is flirting with his own 2024 <laughs> run. Yep. And so, to you know, in, in a sense, will that not freeze Pence in place? Yes. Um, in terms of raising money, in terms of hiring you know, people in terms of making the kinds of moves that you would need to make early on for his own run. Because of all of the potential Republican candidates, he's the one who can't really go out. You know, he can't betray his patron, Donald <laughs> yes. Trump.
3: Yes. This is um, a big question of how that cuts. I mean, look, Trump owns the field until he says he's not running. And you know, whenever that happens, and maybe he does run. I mean, that's it's that's still a big question mark. If he does run, Pence can't run. And that's it's just that simple. And and the same is true of everybody else in the field. But until then, and I think this is where some people, when I was talking with strategists for the for the twenty twenty four rankings, one thing I heard repeatedly was that the in this situation, the people that have pre existing organizations stand the strongest coming into the 2024 20, when it gets serious, you know, around the beginning of 2023. And in that case, we're talking about Mike Pence and Ted Cruz. The Cruz has the, the carryover from 2016. I don't know. It's I, I don't have I have not heard a good gauge of how how much that's been damaged. And Pence himself has, he's like the Proto Cruz, you know, he was Cruz before Cruz showed up. So like in that case, he would devour Cruz's yeah. base alive. Big question mark, though. I mean, Trump, yeah, Trump still dominates.
0: Yeah, we will see. But uh, if, if Pence does what I think he has to do on January 6th, and that is declare Joe Biden the winner, I think uh, Trump will have no further use for him. <laughs> it's not like Pence was ever a trusted advisor anyway for all his obsequiousness. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't um, need he, him anymore. He doesn't need, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point you know, Trump just takes preemptive strikes at, at, at Pence, pointing out he never did anything or suggesting he fucked up the COVID task force <laughs> or, you know, who knows what Trump is capable of, but basically anything. So I think that pretty much would uh, neutralize Pence if his only real play is to appeal to that <laughs> Trump base. It seems to me that others out there, whether it be Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley, uh, may have a better Play for that Trump base than than Mike Pence does, but we will see. And uh, if I'm wrong, uh, Tom, we will definitely have you back for you to point this out. Uh, and if not, we'll have you back to talk about something else. But anyway,
1: what well, by the way, what does what what is Pence going to do on January 20th? Mm. He and Karen fly back to Indiana. Yes. Is he going to? start up another radio talk show is he going to write a book what 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 any idea what his plans uh, are
3: looks like he's probably writing a book He is. uh, I've reported this a couple weeks ago. Will
1: it be a uh, Trump hagiography? (laughs) (laughs) That's
3: a great question. Yeah, right. How how long can you push back the production schedule? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing that that I wrote about a couple weeks ago was that they were looking at possibly being either president of Hillsdale College or Liberty University, you know, which would give them two really strong perches on the. (laughs) To take
0: over for Jerry Falwell Jr. Here at,
3: uh, yeah, um, Let's just hope there's well, not just a full boy. Stay
0: close to mother, Mr. <laughs> Vice President is all I can say. Right? <laughs> you know. Uh, anyway, right. Tom, thanks a lot uh, for joining us on Skull Thank
3: you, guys.